0: What's up, hello everybody, Alex Kapitko here, I hope your day is going well. It's a cool but sunny day here in Chicago, it's a Friday, thank god it's Friday, am I right? Um, It's kind of weird because yesterday was windy, 70s, today it's not windy but in the 40s. (laughs) It just always is a surprise, you know, you wake up, well you go to bed and it's warm, you wake up and it's like this, it's always fun. So. Yeah, that's that's just the Chicago life, I guess. Also, I want to wish everyone a happy Veterans Day. I really, I really appreciate and cherish Veterans Day. I, I appreciate everything our veterans have done. I also have to give a shout out to my dad, who's a veteran, and you know one of my good friends, John, also a veteran. Uh, I, I remember back in high school, I would always his birthday is also Veterans Day, and we'd always um, do some things for that. So I, I have good memories of going to like Veterans Day parades and services and you know, you always had school off, so it was kind of giving you a really good time to kind of take all that in and appreciate what they've done. Now, it's kind of weird on my block here. I don't actually see a, let me look, yeah, I don't see a single American flag, which, whatever, I'm free speech, I don't care, but it's kind of weird. You would think there'd be some, at least on Veterans Day, but I'm in one of those parts of the country where you do see more Ukrainian flags out than American flags. You see, you know, the LGBTQ flag, but the American flag's not very common around here, <laughs> and if you do see it, it's usually on like a Trump stickered truck or something. So, but yeah, I was hoping I'd see a few flags out for um, for Veterans Day, but whatever. Anyways, uh, today I do want to talk about Ron DeSantis, or as Trump calls him, Ron Sanctimonius, which really doesn't flow off the tongue. It's kind of a shitty name that Trump gave him, because Trump's usually like kind of better with giving these names. But anyways, I also want to talk about Trump a little bit and why Florida went so red, and maybe if it's kind of a a warning call to the Democrats. I also want to touch on some of the madness still happening in Maricopa County. Still, (laughs) I think they must have like one guy counting all these ballots, because it's definitely taking longer than a lot of other states. And then I want to talk about a troubling report out of Russia about them testing torpedoes that could be armed with nuclear weapons. They haven't been tested yet, but there's reports they were preparing for it, so never great. And then I just also also want to touch on these new revelations about the, basically about the relationship between Iran and Russia and what those implications could be. Before I get into these topics, I did just want to start with some bad news that was kind of breaking last night. That's when I saw it. It's uh, involving Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. Bad news for some, not bad news for others. Apparently a judge, I believe it was a judge in Texas, struck down Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. And the Biden administration and the White House have now stopped taking applications. I I remember back in mid-October, I submitted an application because I, you know, have some loans and I was like, yeah, well, if they're going to have it, I might as well take advantage of it. But uh, yeah, might not be, might not be happening. Now, I think a lot of people, myself included, over the summer thought that this was going to be struck down or at least stalled due to kind of the rationale used to put out this. According to NPR, there's a U.S. District Court judge in Texas, and he called it unlawful and vacated the debt relief program. The article writes here in quotes, uh, Judge Mark T. Pittman, who was appointed by former President Donald Trump, wrote that the program was a complete usurpation of congressional authority by the executive branch. Pittman rejected the Biden administration's arguments that in a law known as the HEROES Act, Congress had already given the president the power to erase student loan debts in a time of national emergency, and that the COVID-19 pandemic is just such an emergency. And that was kind of what I heard a lot of people, even people on the left, saying it was probably not going to apply to the HEROES Act, and the rationale didn't make sense. And so now the White House has started to appeal the decision. From what I've gathered It's going to be going to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is known for being a little bit more conservative in these type of affairs. So that might not be good for them. Who knows? And from there, it obviously could eventually go to the Supreme Court. Obviously, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but that would be interesting. We do have to remember that Amy Coney Barrett actually did not strike this down. So, yeah, it's likely going to be a tough fight. It's not really surprising, but I guess don't expect to get any loan forgiveness for a while. And, of course, we have to remember that I think it's in January – where the stalled in payments on student debt is gonna end and people are gonna have to start paying it again. So that might be interesting. Uh, Moving on though, (laughs) doing a little midterms here for the first half of this episode. I am bummed because it looks like Lauren Boebert is bouncing back and is likely to win. Over 90% has been counted and she's up now. She's over 50%, so no recall fun. Uh, My celebration was too early. There's still time. Frisch seems just kind of normal, but looks like Lauren will be back. To me, she always seemed like kind of a wannabe Sarah Palin, more annoying, more stupid, more dangerous, but kind of in that same framework. So it's it's too bad she's coming back, probably. But I do have to say that it has been interesting, generally, to see Republicans in the media really start freaking out. They always claim the left is a circular firing squad, which is kind of true, but now it really looks like that firing squad has arrived on the right. You know, it, <laughs> something also funny is that they really don't want to talk about abortion. It's all now Trump's fault. They're all pointing fingers at Trump, pointing fingers at the candidates. No one wants to acknowledge that abortion probably did turn out people as well. Um, that's kind of their Pyrrhic victory they had where, you know, Roe got overturned, but now they've lost some seats that they probably could have picked up. I must begin to say that it's also interesting that it seems like a lot of the anti-anti-Trump people or the Trump defenders are starting to sound like never-Trumpers. You know, they're starting to basically turn on him. I don't know how long this lasts, but it is kind of getting interesting. Mm -hmm. And I can't just help but enjoy the constant reports I keep seeing about infighting, right? Especially inside House leadership. You know, we've been warning Republicans for years that this day was going to come eventually, and here it is. I think the best part, though, is that Kevin McCarthy is really going to be in the kind of in the middle of the circular firing squad, because if he becomes the speaker, he's going to have a pretty miserable time. So it's it's kind of funny. He's finally probably going to get the job, and then he's going to be, like, trying to keep the moderates, the establishment types, and then the Marjorie Taylor Greens all together, and, you know, he's tried to appease the Trump movement, and now they've gotten powerful, and now they're probably going to have him by the balls going forward. So the far right's probably going to control his moves. You're going to have the Freedom Caucus doing stuff, and... While Mitch McConnell has tried to kind of keep himself more distance from Trump, McCarthy's embraced this, and this is what he gets, you know. And I saw Matt Gates, the lovely Matt Gates from Florida, has already said that Jim Jordan should be the speaker. He called Kevin McCarthy something like the C team, excuse me, the C team. So that's going to be interesting to see the chaos that begins. So does that mean McCarthy has to start appealing more to the crazies? I don't know, but I- I'm all here for it. Now, I don't really listen to Ben Shapiro as much anymore. But I decided to yesterday, and he was quite quite reasonable. I was, I was kind of surprised. He was really irritated with the party. And it, it might have been one of the most rational takes I've heard from him in a while, because he's, he's never been pro-Trump, but I just don't like all his culture war BS, you know. And he expressed a lot of my same thoughts on his Daily Wire show yesterday about the party, you know, doing poorly. And of course, he turned it on like, wow, Biden is not popular. Inflation is high. Gas prices are bad. And still you know, the party has done awful. He called it not a red wave, not a red ripple, but the red wedding, and I thought that was pretty accurate. Shapiro blames Trump and the candidates that he put forward. It was just kind of refreshing to hear, Uh, but, I mean, again, we've been saying this for a while, so... It also seems like abortion was key, like I've said, but he didn't really want to acknowledge that as much, because it does seem like while the economy was important, abortion was, and a lot of young voters turned out, and... Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's something the Republicans are really going to have to think about. Like I said, kind of a Pyrrhic victory. They get Roe overturned, and now they've had these awful results. Something interesting as well is that you know DeSantis is just kind of becoming a star overnight now. Um, we'll see I'll that last. My theory is that it's just because he didn't have such extreme positions on abortion, for example. Obviously, he has some weird culture war stuff, and he doesn't seem to be much of a capitalist. He's kind of autocratic in terms of how he treats private businesses, but... He never did support the national ban on abortion or agree with some of the insane limitations that were going forth in states. Instead, he supported something like a 15-week ban, I believe it was. And that, I guess, is good. (laughs) But anyways, um, just like a broad, broad look, because at the time of this recording Friday, Democrats have 198 House seats, right? And the Republicans have 211. So it's crazy, actually, how close that is. We thought it would be much bigger. And... They still need 218, so we're watching that closely. Now, before we get on to what I want to talk about with Ron DeSantis and Florida and all that fun, there's something interesting that I've seen some people bring up, and I think it's a really astute point. And it's basically that for the last, what, two, three years, Republicans have emphasized fraudulent mail in voting, and they've kind of encouraged their voters to vote on the day of, to wait in line and actually vote at the polling location, right? and there's a kind of kind of tragic irony there or just kind of the fact that it sort of backfired because for example Reno Nevada where a lot of my family is there was kind of a freak snowstorm that happened on election day and let's be honest if there's long waits and there's awful weather you probably don't want to wait and so that might actually discourage turnout also in Maricopa County there's reports of long lines and that's probably part of the reason why they're still counting the ballots like look, if you can just vote from your house a month in advance, it's kind of nice. But but the Republicans have convinced so many of their base that they need to vote on the day of elections. It actually might have backfired in this election cycle. And I think that's why you don't want to play with fire involving elections like they clearly have. And it's just, um, it's just interesting to see. Um, also, there's like... The thought experiment of, okay, well, then you have secretary of states that are actually running. Do they recuse themselves? Do they care? Like, there's kind of a breakdown in trust in elections, I think, and it's it's kind of a problem to see, obviously. Now, moving on, though, anyways, I'm still just kind of shocked about how well DeSantis has done in Florida. Watching him debate Charlie Crist, oh, about three weeks ago now, prior to the election, he was just kind of unlikable, boring, prickly... Not that funny, um, not very charismatic, right? But it's, it seems like he's definitely warming up to his own kind of personality, and he's doing great, right? So in 2018, he won by about half of a percentage point, and this time he won by almost 20 points, like 19.2 or something. And that's insane to me. I mean, that must mean that some people who voted Democratic in, uh, in what, 2018 for, for uh, Gillum The Democratic nominee, must have switched over and voted for DeSantis, because 0.4% to almost 20% is a huge gain. So that must mean that some Democrats turned. Michael Moynihan, who's kind of a libertarian-leaning commentator that I follow, he said, I think it was a few days ago, that he went to cover some DeSantis events and rallies in Florida, and he just discussed how the guy really does have a following. He's really a rock star. He also mentioned that DeSantis was starting to loosen up a bit and was becoming more comfortable with crowds and whatnot. And he did have some funny jokes. Like, I don't know if he will ever be quite as charismatic or entertaining as Trump, but it did seem like he was doing well. I, I think I was telling my dad this last night. Yeah, I was telling my dad this last night. Um, I think DeSantis is a bit of an ass. Like, he doesn't seem like a very likable guy to me. And I don't like his culture war issues. I think he's overblown the teaching of history in schools. He's overblown the transgender issues in schools. He's overblown, you know, the don't say gay stuff. I also don't like what he's done with being a kind of authoritarian with private companies like Disney or the cruise lines. But that being said, he definitely is more of a standard politician who's better at kind of threading the needle between the extremes, the moderates. And he is somewhat normal, you know, even if he's prickly, he could meet with Biden and come off as decent. He could look kind of like a leader for once. Like, I couldn't even imagine, like, Trump and Biden standing next to each other. You know, that's just how crazy, like, all that has become. So it'll be interesting to see if DeSantis can actually go against Trump. Like, he would need to—the issue with DeSantis is that in debates I've seen, he's not really good at fighting back. He kind of just stands there. And if he was to go against Trump, he would need to fight back early. And I don't know if he can do that. But what really makes me confused is kind of just how Florida's map has changed, you know. People have for years been talking about how Florida was becoming a more purple state, right? Especially with the Latino vote, which obviously has been overestimated for the right, I mean for the left, sorry. But Marco Rubio slayed in his race, DeSantis walked away with his. I would just kind of argue that I think Democrats should be worried about what happened in Florida, even though, like, obviously the midterms were not as bad as people were thinking for Democrats. It's not great for them still. There's a great article in The Atlantic from yesterday that kind of brings up some good points on these concerns. The article starts by giving sort of an historical background on how elections have typically been close in Florida. The article writes here in quotes, If you count all 50 million votes Florida cast for president from 1992 to 2016, just 20,000 votes separated the two parties, or 0.04%. Rick Scott won statewide elections by 1% or less in 2010, 2014, and 2018, when Governor DeSantis squeaked out his own 0.4% victory as well. End quotes. And it's interesting because as we discussed, something really changed, right? One reason for this that the article kind of speculates is that the Republicans did well in 2022, DeSantis did well in urban Democratic strongholds like Miami-Dade County. Apparently in 2018, DeSantis lost by more than 20 points there. And in this case, it was not that way. And it seems like the Democratic Party has not only lost Latino voters in Florida, but they've also just kind of lost voters in general. And it seems like many would probably blame voter suppression and some of DeSantis's kind of strange policies in the last couple of years leading up to the elections, like hiring his own poll watchers and all this stuff. And there's concerns to be had there. But in reality, it seems like voters are kind of turned off from the Democratic Party. The article notes here in quotes, In Florida, the party also has an attitude problem, an organizational problem, a Latino problem, a growth problem, and a broccoli problem and none of these will be easy to solve. The pitiful turnout of Florida Democrats probably had less to do with voter suppression than voter depression, end quotes. And I think that's probably an issue in general that is illustrative of the DNC and the Democratic Party and other places, kind of like in Ohio, where they just kind of gave up on Tim Ryan. But it seems really, really bad in Florida. I think that quote I just read sums it up fairly well. The article also notes here that the DNC gave up on Florida. Democratic groups that spent $58.7 million in the state in 2018 spent only $1.4 million in 2022. DeSantis raised more than six times as much as Crist. Did the money dry up because the situation was hopeless, or did the situation become hopeless because the money dried up? Probably some of both." End quotes. And to make matters worse, you know, I keep reading in various publications, that the Republicans actually show up in Latino communities. They actually do outreach, and they try to make their case to them. On the other hand, it feels like Democrats aren't as good about doing that, and that's general. I mean, I'm sure in places they are. I think another problem that is not great, though, but it's very prevalent in Florida, is that there is a lot of um, misinformation that's focused on, focused towards, I guess would be a better way to say it, focused towards Latino voters. And it's about Democrats. It's about vaccines. It's about COVID, and it's gotten worse over the years. But I, I think I was reading in The Economist, and, and actually in CNN a few days ago, that there's messages and radio shows run by Latinos who are on the right, and they claim all Democrats are socialist, communist, Marxist. It seems like the Democrats aren't doing a good job of combating those misinformed narratives. And, you know, you have a lot of people that have fled communist or leftist countries that don't like that message, even if it's wrong. So ultimately... It's interesting to see what's happening in Florida because it really does seem like generally speaking the state has gone much more red than people were expecting. I I think that I think that if I was a Republican strategist, I would want to kind of really follow how DeSantis has done this and try to make that nationwide, especially after you know, 2 days ago what happened, but of course, they've distanced themselves from Trump now. I don't know if that will last. I do Sorry, we got a loud vehicle. I do wonder, though, on a side note, if Trump actually announces still next week, because there's reports I saw this morning on the news that the family, the Trump family, that is, is very divided over Trump running again. And maybe the announcement's a bad time following the results of the midterms. I'm sure there's a lot of people in the GOP that are like, hey, man, please don't, please don't announce this right now. We don't need this. We'll just have to see. But, of course, Trump is a narcissist, and so I doubt he will care about the midterms because in his head it's not his fault of course Um, probably he thinks there weren't enough trumpers on the ballot stuff like that so i bet he still does announce but it's going to be just interesting to see all this circular firing squad stuff all the all the mud throwing at each other it's going to be interesting to see so moving on as i've alluded to already and talked about in the last episode arizona especially maricopa county is very fascinating to me in about every way possible First off, it is it is like, of course, it's not a surprise based on how they do it in some of these big counties that it's taking so long. But I still just have to joke about how slow it's taking to count these ballots. Yesterday, for the gubernatorial race, for example, I think it was like 76% of the vote had been counted. Today, we're up to 79. Where we had some states where we already know the, knew the results on election day. I mean, Pennsylvania is a pretty big state, right? We knew that. Like, I, I mean, this is a whole other subject, but I think down the road maybe we need to have some conversations about making more uniform voting practices, so we don't have this type of shit going on where there's a lot of conspiracies growing and speculation and misinformation. Because the longer it takes to count these votes, and the more likely it's just riddled with issues, right? And propaganda and Kerry Lake. <laughs> um, so yeah. So as of now, seventy-nine percent of the vote has been counted in Arizona. Hobbs is still barely winning at the time of this recording. She has 50.7% of the vote to Carrie Lake's 493 So it's kind of wild. It's still that close. I could still see Lake winning this, to be honest. Now, Blake Masters, I think it's, it's over for him. Thank God Mark Fincham, the Secretary of State, also is not going to win. So I guess like the silver lining is say Carrie Lake wins, at least she would have a secretary of state who's a Democrat who would kind of keep her in check. Like, I hope it doesn't come to that. But at least we don't have like Kerry Lake and Mark Fincham because then I think Arizona would be screwed. But like I said, Kerry Lake's already starting to stop the steal lies and conspiracies just because, I mean, it's taking so long that there's time to speculate like that, you know. You would think Arizona would have tried to get all this together after all the 2020 chaos, but I, I think there's been so many counts and so much fear-mongering and chaos that it's just kind of a nightmare. <sighs> the Hill reports that the two candidates are separated in a too-close-to-call race. Hundreds of thousands of votes are yet to be counted, right? We probably won't know, I'm assuming, until Monday, I hope, like you would, you would think. I mean, these people are working hard, so... I hope they don't get threats. I'm sure they will. Kerry Lakes pretty much made fun of them and said it's slow, and they're trying to slow down the process. I don't think that's it. People are working hard. Gates, who, who is part of the county's counting, um, I think he directs it. He was on CNN calling them out about that. But the Hill article from this morning—no, or no, it was from last night, sorry— notes and quotes here that the vast majority of Arizona's 15 counties have yet to report some of their votes. The New York Times estimates that as well, but there are two counties in particular which will compromise a substantial share of the remaining votes: Maricopa County and Pima County. Pima County, sorry. And of course, Maricopa County is really interesting, and it's it's kind of one of these places that just goes back and forth um, because Trump won Arizona in 2016 and he led Maricopa County by three points. Four years later, Trump narrowly lost the state to Biden and trailed by two points in the county, so it really goes all over the place. So. I, I would speculate that, and it's kind of an educated guess, is that whoever wins Maricopa County will probably win this race. Just big, right? It would make sense. Now, Carrie Lake is, was a star in Maricopa County, so that could help her, which is not always positive, but again, we don't know yet. Like I said, Carrie Lake is calling fraud. I saw her go on Tucker Carlson, I think it was Wednesday night's show, because yeah, today's Friday, so yeah, Wednesday night's show. And she said she was 100% certain that she would win the election, That's hard to believe just because she's currently not, and unless she knows something that we don't, that's just irresponsible. Interesting reports yesterday as well mentioned that Lake was actually meeting with her transition team or her would-be transition team. This is usually what happens when someone knows they're going to win, right? So it's a bit strange if you ask me. CNN notes that, in quotes here, a source in Republican nominee Carrie Lake's campaign told CNN that Lake has been in meetings today with her would-be transition team. She has met with a uh, a number of people, including Trump's former acting attorney general, Matthew Whitaker, in an effort to begin to establish her advisory team, if she were to win. Matthew Whitaker is an interesting case as well. That's a whole other story. But it's just strange to me because, as I've said, the race is far from over. Hobbs is still winning. It's going to be a while. Lake could still win this, but I don't like the rhetoric. She's basically firing up her base, convincing them that she's going to win. And if she does not, she's going to claim it was stolen. So I think Maricopa County still is going to be quite fascinating going forward. I just can't get over how kind of careless she is. Crazy. I really hope she doesn't win for so many reasons, which I don't need to explain to you guys again. I will also note that I've been watching, I've been watching um, Nevada very closely as well. Laxalt, Adam Laxalt is still up 49 percent to Cortez Masto, who has 48%, 88% has been counted. This is going to be interesting. Right now, this looks almost runoff territory, though from everything I've read, it does not seem like people are actually expecting this to be a runoff. Again, who knows? Like, (laughs) who knows is all I can really say right now. Um, Also, Lombardo looks like he is going to beat Sisolak for governor of Nevada, I've heard some people say that he's not as extreme as he is. He, he kind of tried to appeal to the Trumpy base, but he's actually not a big stop the steel guy or anything. So one can only hope. So we're just going to have to keep watching all of these. And um, before we're out of here, I want to shift over for a little bit. Um, I'm kind of getting sick of talking about the midterms, you know. So hopefully by next week we'll have some changes in what I'm talking about. But, yeah, before we're out of here, there is some good news. Apparently Ukraine's forces— the. The Ukrainian forces, sorry, I can't speak, have liberated Kurson. Um There's reports that the main bridge across the river in the Kherson region has been destroyed. And uh, I'm looking at a TV right now, and there is serious celebration going on. Again, you know, there's a lot a lot ahead, ahead still, so we're going to have to see what happens. But that is definitely positive. I remember, what, two days ago I was talking about how there were reports that Russia was losing it. Now the question is, does Putin see this as an escalation does he kind of listen to the facts that things are not looking good that this is a major defeat we will just have to kind of wait and see for that but the economist also on a kind of different note involving ukraine <clears throat> has a good article about how ukraine is deploying its first Nasams and asked pday air defense systems this is good because they're going to be able to shoot down russian missiles and drones which have been targeting ukraine's civilian power infrastructure Right. Um, of course, that'll probably be seen as an escalation, but what are you supposed to do? I mean, the bombings over Kiev and other cities have been atrocious over the last few weeks and things are just not looking good for them. What, what is interesting to me is that it's been, it's been kind of warm in Europe, so I'm, I'm sure the Russians were hoping that things would be getting cold right now because that kind of obviously makes them kind of twist of the knife a little bit better. But it's been like fairly warm, so obviously that's not gonna last forever, but for now that is good. Now, all I can say though is it probably still be, will be a pretty long winter ahead, right? Everyone's being resilient, resilient, so that's good. But now, I want to discuss some troubling report coming out of Russia. There's reports from news outlets in both the UK and the United States that have reported that the U.S. intelligence officials have detected Russia trying to test torpedoes that could be nuclear-powered or even armed with nuclear weapons. I am not a military weapons expert, believe me. But... From what I've gathered, this is the Poseidon torpedo and it's on the Belgorod, which is a cruise missile submarine modified for basically special operations. And it's been a- and the Belgorod has been able to launch unmanned underwater vehicles, including the Poseidon torpedo. And I read up on this torpedo, it's a nuclear powered unmanned underwater vehicle capable of carrying both conventional and nuclear munitions. Its nuclear propulsion system gives the Poseidon virtually limitless range, which is terrifying. I don't like the term limitless range when I'm talking about warheads, but anyways. Apparently, from what I've gathered, it would be able to destroy you know, a pretty big piece of land if it was properly used and equipped, so that's never great. Apparently, these tests have been going on over the last few weeks, and they were observed leaving the testing area in the Arctic Sea over the last week. That's... Tests kind of north of Russia, where the Arctic Sea is, where Russia has a lot of activity going on, I guess you could say. Now, some good news, though, is that the intelligence officials have confirmed that these submarines actually left without conducting these tests. So so they actually didn't do the tests. They were out there. So I don't know if this is like muscle flexing or something else. But the speculation is that there were technical issues of some kind. Which I guess is half-baked good news. Not really surprising. The Russians always seem to be having these issues. I guess that's what happens when an autocratic country starts a war, you know. But interestingly, the Belgrade is the longest submarine in the world right now. And in November 2020, the Assistant Secretary of State for International Security said and he's Christopher Ford, by the way, said Poseidons are being designed, in quotes, to inundate U.S. coastal cities with radioactive tsunamis. And I do remember reading about that at the time. Another few words I don't like to see in a sentence is radioactive tsunamis. That's, again, something else I don't like to see, but also a U.S. Congressional Research Service report, the CRS, as it's called, uh, reported this year, so I think it was back in April, that Poseidons are mainly retaliatory torpedoes, so that's meant that they're supposed to hit back on an enemy if there's a nuclear strike. Now, I'm just speculating because we don't know enough right now. Everything's kind of shoddy. But I think there's kind of two possibilities here. The pandemic did delay Putin's forces from testing this technology I was reading. So maybe they're just flexing and testing. That's definitely a possibility, and they're not actually planning on using it. The other possibility, which is more nefarious, uh, nefarious, sorry, is that we've heard Russia keep talking about Ukraine using a dirty bomb or saying that Ukraine's going to start some nuclear conflict. Maybe Russia is preparing for that pretext. You know, of course, information is murky coming out of Russia. So who knows? But either way, I don't like to see that this is being tested. The technology on it and the size of this vehicle, the Belgrade, is not great. So, yeah, we'll have to keep everyone up on that. Staying on weapons and the war in Ukraine, though, there's also, there's also some other troubling reports that link Russia and Iran since day one of the invasion. I know some people have thought Iran's kind of got involved later. That does not seem to be the case. The Guardian has a good article from today that discusses, in quotes, Ukraine's military has shown The Guardian evidence that at least some of the Iranian-made drones used by Russia in its war were probably supplied after uh, Moscow's full-scale invasion in February. Ukraine said it first noticed that Russia was using Iranian-supplied weapons in September. Since then, Russia has successfully used them to target Ukraine's critical energy infrastructure, causing serious power outages. Something I found interesting here is that apparently Iran has claimed that they sent Russia these drones way before the invasion, right? They, they've always had some relations over the last decade. And they said, we sent these drones over there prior to the invasion, not associated with the invasion. Don't worry, all is good. But this article brings up that there's one problem with that narrative and it's that ukrainian officials have recently dismantled the mohajar 6 which is the iranian spy drone and the manufacturing date was february 2022 after the invasion in fact and so this complicates things it's troubling because if this is all true there's really some serious implications in iran's involvement again it's interesting that saudi arabia you know as we've discussed before has been kind of working with russia russia i keep saying russia Keep working with Russia to control the oil reserves right now. Iran and Saudi Arabia are enemies, so this could complicate things. And to go further, Western officials told CNN that Russia was planning to buy Iranian ballistic missiles. Also, not great. And interestingly, about nine hours ago, Reuters put out an article that discusses how Iran says it's built hypersonic ballistic missiles. And there's a commander, I'm going to hopefully not butcher his name amir ali hazizad of the revolutionary guard and he said in quotes here this missile has a high speed and can maneuver in and out of the atmosphere it will target the enemy's advanced anti-missile systems and is a big generational leap in the field of missiles now i should add that there are no reports of the tests at this time but i don't like the escalation i don't like that russia wants these you know and sorry we got a vehicle Um, Unfortunately, what, what more is disappointing here is that... Is Iran being pushed closer to Russia because we pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal? Or have they always been lying to us and the conservatives were right and Israel was right? Maybe a little bit of both, but unfortunately what it looks like now is that with this relationship with Russia and also with the unrest going on right now... In, in Iran, it seems like they're cracking down on civil rights and they're getting closer with Russia. And it might be really hard for us to have any good relationships with Iran right now, especially with this current regime and especially with what they're doing in Ukraine. So that's kind of a disappointing factor in this. Anyways, we're going to have to keep watching. Again, it's great to see that Kherson seems to be liberated. Again, I'm not going to celebrate too much yet, but that is always good to see. Lastly, I'll just add before we're out of here, apparently... <laughs> Apparently Chappelle's supposed to be on SNL this week. Dave Chappelle, who I find funny, I, I think he's it's a little bit overblown. A lot of people have complex views. He's not perfect. I don't think everything he said is right. But apparently he's supposed to be on SNL this week. And there's claims that writers are going to boycott his appearance. <laughs> SNL hasn't been funny for years. It would be great if he's on there. But, you know, the show just is too fragile. I I, th- I watched some of it with my mom a few weeks ago. Um, we watched, I think, the Halloween episode, and just wasn't funny. It's like they're afraid to do anything funny. They're afraid to be bold, controversial, and it just kind of ends with just silly bullshit. And, of course, they'd be afraid to bring Chappelle on. I mean, and, yeah, he hasn't said always the best things, but sometimes you have to be willing to let people on like that. And, uh, yeah, SNL's definitely past its prime for sure. And it's just funny that this is the big story that I've seen all morning on CNN as they're just ranting about this. So, anyways, I'll be back next week. I might be putting out a special episode about the World Cup and why it's atrocious that uh, the Qatar cutter is uh, hosting it. It starts in about a week, I believe. Go Spain. I Part of me wants to boycott it, but I love the sport so much that it's going to be hard to. So anyways, uh, thank you for listening. I'll be back and you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, you know, all that jazz. So thank you guys and take care.